Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben. Well, last week was pretty crazy. That was a really big chunk of of chapters to really try to tackle all in one sitting. We did it in two sittings, and the first one was a little bit shorter. The The second one was quite a bit longer. I think we covered enough of the details. I was thinking maybe we could possibly skirt by without having it be as long this time. I hope so, but we have quite a few things to talk about. Um, just as an overview, we're, we're covering Elma 53 through 63. So there's 10 chapters here, and there are there's just... We were talking just a little bit ago. There are far more questions I think I have than answers in a lot of these texts. And so let's we'll get into that. But first, of all, just an overview, because we're going to start where we left off before. But this is when we have we're in the middle, of the, right, right in the middle of the war chapters. And in these chapters, we have Moroni, who now is going to turn off the epistle and start talking about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and about the stripling warriors. We'll have quite a bit to say about that. Then from 54 and 55, we have this exchange between Amaron and Moroni to negotiate for prisoners. And this ends up with Moroni being really upset with Amaron and from him basically go striking out on his own to go rescue the prisoners. And they do rescue the prisoners, the Nephite prisoners, and because the, the Lamanites had started to take men, women, and children, and the Nephites were only taking men. So they, you know, they were doing some uh, some back and forth, and we have some military strategy there about how they were accomplishing that. Then from chapters fifty six through fifty eight is where we get Helaman's epistle. So Helaman ends up writing to Captain Moroni, telling him all about the Stripling Warriors and about everything that had been going on with the Stripling Warriors, and the two main battles that we have where they miraculously are saved and they they are preserved. And from that, Helaman ends his epistle saying, oh yeah, and by the way, we haven't received any decent provisions from Bahorn and from Zarahemla for quite some time. We need some help. And Moroni's like, huh, that's interesting. So he writes a letter to Bahorn and he doesn't get anything back, but yet they come into another battle. They end up losing the city of Nephiha. And now Moroni is upset. He's like, man, if Helaman's not getting supplied, we're not getting supplied. So he ends up <laughs> chapter 60. It's the longest rebuff I've ever heard in my life. But man, Moroni just goes crazy to Pahoran and telling him all sorts of things that he's, he's going to come down there. If Pahoran doesn't send him supplies and doesn't be able to strengthen the armies and the provisions, that he's going to come in there and destroy him and calls Pahoran out on all these things. To which Pahoran in chapter 61 ends up writing back and like, Moroni, I agree with you. It's not my fault. And then proceeds to tell him some things that have been going on in Zarahemla and why the provisions haven't been been uh, forthcoming. And in fact, Perhorn's been kicked out of Zarahemla. He's now in Gideon. And that brings us into 62, when basically Moroni comes back into Zarahemla, cleans house, does some things here with the, the kingmen, and then 
cleans up with the rest of the Lamanites. Uh, that's where the wars pretty much end, because in 63, the final chapter here of Alma, we simply have basically a sign-off. It's the end of an era. It's the end of all of these people, Shiblon, Corianton, Helaman, everybody dies. Moroni dies, and so it's the conclusion of all that. The handing of the torch from Moroni after Moroni Ha happens and in the, in the end of 62, and then it's we're into Helaman next week. And so, wow, there's just, there's just so much here. So that's kind of the overview of where we're at. But let's get into some details because we have a lot of stuff to say here about the the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and about how their transition happened in with the stripling warriors, their sons that didn't take the oath. And man, you and I were discussing, and this is not conclusive, but I was having the exact same thought that you began to talk about. And so we both independently had this same question because we come in and, and the treatment that Mormon gives in compiling the record of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's in chapter 53, and his treatment and the words that he's using and everything just is completely different than how he's talking about them in Alma 26. And the emphasis and the actual getting into the conversion and the reasons for conversion and Alma and Ammon rather talking about how the anti-Nephi-Lehi's have been so thoroughly converted inside their heart and how that manifests out. But yet here in chapter 53, none of that is even mentioned. All we have here is simply a discussion of the oath that they took. Because we know that Ammon came into Zarahemla. You know, when that moment came and Ammon and Lamoni were talking about what they should do, and Ammon wanted to suggest they all go into the Nephite land and then the Nephites would protect him. And Lamoni's like, no, we're not. And they have that discussion. Ammon finally goes into the land. And one of the words that we know that basically the primary argument that he uses is that they have had an oath to God that they're not going to fight anymore. They buried their weapons of war. They're basically going to be nonviolent people for the rest of their lives. And this is what pacifies the Nephites. And we know that's what pacifies the Nephites because that's what they say in response. They, the Nephites end up sending in a message saying it's basically because they have covenanted to never do this again, we're, we'll give it to them, the land of Jershon. That happens in Alma 27. So we know that the whole Nephite way of understanding the anti-Nephi-Lehi's is incomplete. And we know Ammon has even said in Alma 26 that the Nephites don't, don't can't even comprehend the level of conversion that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's have had, because even the Nephites would, would not suffer themselves to be destroyed, but would take up the sword. And yet, when we finally get here to Alma 53, either I, I find that either Mormon is doing such an incredible job with just talking about the Nephite narrative, and about how the Nephites saw the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as not... They couldn't comprehend their conversion, but they simply just saw the oath because we know that they put so much value on the oath. But that's all they talk about. In fact, I counted it up and in one page on Alma 53 from verses 8 until 19, he mentions the oath four times and he mentions the covenant that they made five times. But they don't talk about the conversion. They don't talk about their love. They don't talk about the sacrifice and being willing to sacrifice. They don't talk about any of that. They just talk about the oath. So Ben and I, you, you and I talked about the possibility 
I, and, and we need definitely this is not something that we're firm on and it would take a lot of extra study, but just the recognition that there is such a disconnect in the way that they're talking about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and, and their conversion, it almost appears to me that the war chapters were something that Moroni, I'm sorry, that Mormon had put together while he was a general. And it's almost like this had become like his manual in distributing this to his generals of saying, look, I've looked over all of the Nephite records and look at all of these different methods that they were using to preserve their people. And I'd gone through this week and I'd, I'd restudied Mormon and I read half of uh, Mormon just to kind of get another glimpse about who Mormon was and what he was acting on. And just to, and you brought it up last week, Ben, about just the depravity of his people and how he was just looking for any answers that he could possibly get. In pot, and he's probably just pouring over all these records, military records, anything that he could find to get ideas to preserve his people. And he happens upon these stories. And it's like, this is a condensed version about how he compiled all these stories together. Because last week, as we were talking, it doesn't happen anywhere else. But in those 10 chapters that we read last week, but I counted about seven times that Mormon brings out the Nephite cause for fighting. And it's to preserve their families, their children, their wives, their land, and their faith in God. You know, the whole title of liberty. And it's almost like Mormon is trying to convince his own people in his own day and his own generals of saying, look, here's some military strategy. But by the way, riddled throughout all this is the reason they were fighting. Because once you read the Book of Mormon, like the actual book in the Book of Mormon, all it is is revenge. It's hatred, revenge, killing just to be killing, killing just because they hate the Lamanites. And Mormons like, you'll never be preserved that way. And so these war chapters almost stand out to me this week This week, as though these were almost like their own secluded text that he would hand out to his generals or hand out to his people as a way of converting them. It's like, listen, if we're going to go fight, we got to follow these principles. And if we follow these principles, you have to be fighting for these reasons. And then he has these this pamphlet or these these pages that he's put together and he's distributed, and it almost looks to me, Ben, and as I said, I'm not promoting this as the absolute truth, but it almost looks to me that from that point, he's then in his later on in his life, he starts to actually record the whole history of the Nephites. He gets to like the Alma 26 and the Alma 27s, and he starts to try to work his way and weave his way into a text that he's already written earlier in his life. And then from that, we have the war chapters. And one of the evidences that, uh, that I saw for that was in, you know, we've brought it up before quite a bit, but is in chapter 28, where after the whole anti-Nephi-Lehi story, in verse 8, Mormon ends, and he says, and this is the account of Ammon and his brother and their journeys in the land of Nephi and their sufferings. And then in verse 9, he says, and now this is the account of the wars and the contentions among the Nephites and also the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites in the 15th year of the reign of the judges. But the thing is, is from that point in 28, he doesn't pick up on the war chapters for like another, let's hear 28, all the way through for about another 14 chapters. And so it's almost like now he's trying to work his way from the anti-Nephite narrative into what he's talking about here in the war chapters. And that's why, at least I think it's standing out to me in this way, why these war chapters are even here and why they read the way that they read as far as a, like a military structure and military journey, why they are always taking care of paying particular attention to how they are fortifying their cities. 
and also in how they're taken care of is for the reasons by which the Nephites fought. Because if Mormon's dealing with a really wicked people, that makes a lot more sense to me. You know, it's it's definitely a different Mormon that's writing these chapters than wrote the other ones. And, you know, one one possibility for that in terms of, you know, how how could that be a different Mormon was, you know, this was something that he put together earlier in his life and, and abridgment and some of the other stuff was later. It could be an earlier, later thing, or it could be that these texts were just had different purposes, right? So, you know, he talks in Mormon constantly about how wicked the people are that he's leading into battle. And I imagine him always looking for some way to bring them, to call them to a higher law, right? And and so this is definitely one way you could do it. Obviously, um, I, I think it's one of the more obvious things here that Mormon identifies with Captain Moroni. And so he he wants to try to frame this narrative. If, if this is something that he put together, this sort of this section, we could say from chapter 43 to 62, so to speak, if this is something he put together as a manual or a pamphlet or something or a narrative that he tried to to teach the people that he was leading into battle, it would make sense. You know, he's he's trying to build this identity, but it's an identity that's that's based on a, a more just war type of theory, something that is shunning away from this revenge and, and bloodthirstiness of the people that they had because he mentions many times throughout this and is, is constantly you know, driving home the point that Captain Moroni really makes great efforts to avoid unnecessary bloodshed. Throughout these chapters we're going to read, we're going to look at you know, where Moroni is constantly trying to you know, strategize in a way that minimizes the amount of people that are actually killed in the conflict. So you know, I can I can see that Mormon is is trying to drive that narrative home with his people, saying, you know, you need to let go of your bloodthirstiness, and, and this is a little bit, you know, part of his preaching, right? And and he he puts a lot of religious undertones, you know, space throughout it, trying to sort of, you know, prod uh, his his people. So I think that is a uh, although there's there's not like any direct explicit evidence of that. I think that fits very very well with what we know about Mormon and his life. And what he was trying to do during his life versus what he was trying to do or the the charge he had to keep these records and abridge them and, and prepare them to, to come to our time. Um, like I said, I, I just see a different Mormon in these chapters than, than we see in others. And that's okay. It's a, there's, there's a different audience potentially here. And then we also just have uh, potentially a different Mormon at different times in his life that has a different perspective on things. One of the themes that I've seen, uh, that I see throughout the chat, these chapters, 53 through 63, and, and it kind of, you know, started before, but especially beginning with, uh, with Helaman and, and what goes on with him is that war, this war especially, but war in general becomes a great distraction from building the kingdom of God. And we have this whole narrative of Alma constantly seeking to uh, to preach the gospel any chance he can get, uh, even throughout and during all of these wars. 
and even the the sons of Mosiah. I mean, they're out preaching the gospel to the Lamanites during the whole Amlicite war and during these other wars. And and yet we see this war has has become this enormous distraction away from that that those efforts of preaching of the gospel and building the church. And um, in fact, we see you know in in the later chapters after sort of the war is all over, we have this statement uh, by Mormon. He says, uh, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war. And many were softened because of their afflictions and so much that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depth of humility. And then it says Helaman, um, you know, returns from the war and goes back to his house. And in verse 44, Helaman did take upon him again to preach unto the people the word of God. For because of so many wars and contentions, it had become expedient that a regulation should be made again in the church. Well, what's that reminiscent of, right? Right back to the chapter when we had the problems with Amalekia, right? They went out to preach to reg- regulation in the church because of the big uh, Zarahemna battle. And then we get the the whole rebellion and Amalekia comes out of that, right? And so... <clears throat> It's interesting that there's sort of that that cycle there. But again, back to the point that that war, there's a theme in here that war is a distraction, a great distraction from the building of the kingdom of God. And, um, you know, I even see here and, and uh, you know, there, in these chapters where it's going to be seen as if we're we're judging or condemning any of these great characters for their actions. That's not what I'm attempting to do. I'm attempting to do what I've, I've talked about before is what Moroni exhorts us to do. And he says, learn to be more wise than we have been. And and I just see in the actions of Helaman, um, I see something where it's possible that there could have been a better way. And I don't know, I wasn't in his shoes, but I can see these different narratives here. And I can see that Helaman might have had a different way set to him. And he what Helaman chose was war, but that wasn't what Helaman had to choose. Helaman was the high priest of the church. He had the charge from his father Alma to keep the records and to preach to the people. And he was supposed to be doing that constantly. In fact, in the earlier chapters, even though the people were out fighting wars, the sons of Mosiah and, and the sons of Alma were constantly preaching the gospel and keeping the people's people humble and converted. And there was, that was their job. And here we have Helaman who, who leaves that. And I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say he forsakes the ministry. Like, you know, we would, we would uh, say Corianton did. Right. But I just see, you know, that Helaman does seem to go along with, with this whole, the whole war thing and leaves behind the church and has to come in after the fact and sort of try to patch things up again. It doesn't, you know, it's it's not the same. And uh, so I just, I wonder if if Helaman, you know, had stayed in his station as high priest and his responsibility to watch over and care for the church instead of going off to battle, you know, what effect that might have had among the people. I had the same thought too. In fact, when I was going back over through Alma's words to Helaman when he was in Alma 36 and 37, uh, you know, one of the, you know, to, to phrase that beforehand, one of the themes against 
the the nonviolent theme of the Book of Mormon is that the anti-Nephi-Lehi parents did not instill in their children the actual direct message of nonviolence, that they allowed them to go out and to go fight, and that Alma himself didn't tell Helaman in 36, 37, or later on just before he leaves, about the same ethic. He doesn't, he doesn't specifically and explicitly talk about this. And, and I think we brought this up a little bit last week, but this is not an, an issue for me at all. In fact, when I look at this, what I see is that that kind of conversion that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's went through, that kind of conversion is really deep. And you have to have the conversion first before burying your swords or beating them into plowshares, as it were. That if we go through and disarm a populace before we've actually converted the heart, we've done we've actually succeeded in nothing. That the whole point here is, is that there is a conversion to God first, and then there is this later realization that, uh, that Alma had. Because just like Helaman goes into battle here, Alma went into battle with Amlesai. But then Alma learns after the battle with Amlesai and how bad that was the worst arm that was the worst war they'd had up until that point. And then Alma later on realizes this is futile. This is absolutely ridiculous. We can't live this way. And that's why in four in, in Alma 419 and Alma 31.5, they he comes to the realization that nothing had a greater impact in actually changing society and changing the individual than bearing down pure testimony. Even the sword, he explicitly says. And so Alma, though, has gone through this process a completely different way. He went through it by way of the Ammonihah experience and through the Zoramite experience. And he begins to see the missionary work and the endeavors and the changed hearts that happened that way, he himself having been the chief judge. And he had the power of the chief judge to be able to do whatever he wanted to do with, within the law to be able to change society and to create good society by enforcing and using coercion and violence of the state to be able to change things. But Alma saw something different. And yet when Alma comes time to be able to tell his son Helaman what to do, the main themes that Alma brings out is to keep the commandments and be true to God. And I, not, I don't think ironically at all, it ha- happens to be the exact same theme that the mothers of the stripling warriors told their sons. That we have this same thing, that you have these parents who've gone through an incredible conversion process, who've truly seen the face of God, who've truly beat their swords into plowshares, and what is the theme by which they actually impart? Keep the commandments of God and trust in God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. You see, we last week we talked about Mosiah 7.33, and that is the one place where there's like three criteria by which the Lord delivers people, and that is that we, if we will turn to him with all purpose of heart, that we will trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind. But yet through all these war chapters, we only see partial parts of these different three criteria being used. But the Lord does prosper his people by degrees. And that's one of the things that I've found is a very strong theme throughout the war chapters, and especially the Book of Mormon itself, is that it's not a record of just one celestial standard that everybody lives by, but there there are varying degrees of of good, better, and best. There are good situations where these people acted according to God's law in good ways. There are people who acted according to God's laws in better ways. And then we find that there are people who acted according to God's law and with conversion in the best way possible, the true conversion. But what's fascinating is that here in Alma 53, we start to see that the anti-Nephi-Lehi is moved with compassion over the afflictions and the tribulations that the Nephites had in this war, 
It says they were moved with compassion and they were desirous to take up arms in defense of their country. And yet Helaman, you know, the brand, this brand new prophet, he's been out as a missionary with his father. He's seen the success of that, but for whatever reason, now he's here fighting in this war. He said as soon as they were about to take up their weapons of war, they were overpowered by the persuasion of Helaman and the brethren, for they were about to break the oath which they had made. See, in the Nephite land, and this goes back to Hugh Nibley, right, in asking why in the very first chapters of the Book of Mormon, when Zoram, when Nephi overtakes Zoram and tackles him, basically, and, and, and won't let him go back to the city. But it says that as soon as he made an oath that he would not return, their fears did cease concerning him. And like, what is it about an oath that did that? And Hugh Nibley goes through and talks about that moment, about how this ancient belief in an oath was sacrosanct. You don't violate this. Which is the same reason why Moroni is always stopping mid-battle, and if they swear an oath that they won't fight again, and then they won't, uh, they, they'll, they'll throw down their arms and they won't fight again, he lets them go. Which is a really weird thing to think about in kind of current American military strategy. We don't just take soldiers and like, do you promise you won't come out against us? All right, well, you know, take a hike. You know, that's just not the way we do things. But in their culture, an oath was sacrosanct. And so the Nephites, they don't view and understand the conversion process that led to the oath. They just understand the oath. And they put priority and primacy and, and power in the oath, more so because they still don't understand the conversion that came before it. So the Nephites are still kind of in this putting the cart before the horse. It seems to be that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's understood this concept that conversion came before the actual covenant. They were converted, and therefore they came to the covenant. The same thing like with Alma the Elder in the waters of Mormon. They were converted first, and then they entered into the waters of baptism. And same thing with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. But the Nephites here seem to be putting the covenant ahead of the actual conversion. And so I don't know if it's the right way of doing things. I don't know if it's the wrong way of doing things so much as it seems to be the way they were doing it. And so the people, what I find here, it's absolutely fascinating is that even though there was such a deep conversion among the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, even though they had had that moment, I still go back to Alma 5 all the time when he says, even though you have at one point felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? As if to tell us, listen, you're never, I had an old bishop that my wife and I used to have when we were dating, and he said it all the time, you're never safe until you're safely dead. In other words, there is an enduring to the end. There's no, you come to a testimony and that's it. You get to ride that out for the rest of your life. You're converted to the gospel and that's it. You're converted for the rest of your life. There is this enduring to the end concept that you always come back to the moment of conversion and that becomes a daily process for you. And so we see that with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They had been converted, they had made oaths, but now they were looking on going back on them. But luckily, they did have these Nephites who, at least in their understanding of oaths, wouldn't let them break it. And But then, it's still at the same time, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were still teaching their children, who were still not old enough to really comprehend probably what they had been through, but at least they understood in such a powerful way, you trust in God, and he will deliver you. You know, when you read verse 14 about how you know, chapter 53, that that uh, they were about to take up their weapons of war. I, um, and this goes along with what you were saying earlier. Like, there's a lot of questions I have about this that I, I don't necessarily know how to reconcile this. Because, you know, back in Alma chapter 27, verse 28, it says, 
and never could they be prevailed upon to take up arms against their brethren. Well, then, I mean, I don't, what is it? Were they not able to be prevailed upon or were they, you know? And so uh, this, this might go back to what we were talking about earlier, where we just, we have a different Mormon uh, writing this here with a, a different perspective on these people that, that maybe the accounts and perspectives that he was taking into account here in, in chapter 53 are different from the ones that he finds out from chapter 27, right? And um, I, I just imagine him reading in chapter 53 sort of the Nephite narrative and the Captain Moroni account versus chapter 27 is more, you know, the Ammon account or the anti-Nephi-Lehi account where they actually explain their their motives and, and how they really felt. felt. And so I'd, I'd be interested to see, you know, somebody that might have uh, some thoughts on how these these two different verses are really reconciled because, you know, Mormon says they never could be prevailed upon to do it. But then here it seems like they they were about to do it out of their, their own accord. But in anyway, you know, Helaman takes these these 2000. He, he marches at the head of them. You know, Alma 5320. I, I remember when I was uh, a teacher, teacher's quorum. And uh, we we did one of these recite things, right? So uh, we all had Alma fifty three twenty memorized, uh, and they were all young men, and they were exceedingly valiant for courage, and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all; they were men who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were interested. And this was this very you know inspiring verse about these these young men, you know, that were uh, very valiant in their covenants and their promises and, and their responsibilities. Um, so, you know, it was interesting that that was kind of part of the, the youth narrative, right? That, that you want to emulate these young men because, uh, they were, uh, people to emulate, so to speak. Um, so I just remember that from being, uh, in teacher's quorum. I don't know if you ever did anything with those verses there. I think it's a rite of passage. Is it? Okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, Helaman did march at the head of his 2,000 stripling soldiers and to the support of the people in the borders of the land on the south by the West Sea. And uh, I know that they took their weapons of war with them, um, but uh, it, they – I'm not sure that Helaman fully expected them to fight. You know, we get in these later chapters where Helaman is really, really hesitant to take them – actually take them into battle ever. Um, and it's almost like they're there for uh, moral support and assistance. You know, when they get to the city and there's Antipas there, they help Antipas sort of fortify the city. So they're sort of the, the grunt labor to help do this. But I'm not sure Helaman really anticipated them actually fighting in battle. I'm not sure. Uh, but he's amazed uh, when they finally do at... Uh, their ability and their their fearlessness, you know, it says they didn't fear death and that their purpose and whole design there was was simply they were thinking upon the liberty of their fathers, which is a, a very interesting statement with regard to these men. Yeah, also concerning the sons of the Antonifi-Lehi's, I find it fascinating in chapter 53, and it's in verse 16, about how the sons of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's left the identity of their fathers and took upon themselves the names of the Nephites. 
And, and this is really interesting when we go back to the actual conversion story back in, in Alma 17 through 26, because Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni, their whole point and their strategy and how they were talking to Lamoni and Lamoni's father was to start, and we talked about how they went all the way back to the creation of the world, which was a very symbolic way to be able to talk about things uh, in, in ancient Semitic cultures. That's why we have the Bible that starts with the whole origin of the universe. And they proceeded to then talk about the whole history of God all the way up to Father Lehi coming into the promised land and the split of Laman and Lemuel and about the Nephite narrative. And the missionary conversion tool that they were using and utilizing was basically playing on these two strong dominant narratives between Nephi and, and Laman. And their specific explicit point was to convince them against the traditions of their fathers to the traditions of the Nephites. But when the anti-Nephi-Lehites are finally converted, they don't become Nephites. And in fact, they take upon themselves the anti-Nephi-Lehites. And we talked about a little bit of the... There's a little bit of incongruity, or there's not a unanimous voice as to what this name actually means. But what the few things that are understood is that they were seeking to find a name that was not specifically Lamanite, that was not specifically Nephite. It was a different kind of name that was unique to them that was kind of not even necessarily a middle ground. I think it was just a completely different name that they could be known by that signified that they were neither Lamanite nor Nephite. They were something else completely. They were something else entirely. But yet when their sons end up going to war, they don't go to war under the name of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They don't go to war under the name of the people of, you know, basically the people of Ammon. They go to war under the name of Nephites. They identify as Nephites. And then they identify to take upon, and to basically at that point, to then, they covenant to defend the Nephite land, to, pr to protect the Nephites. It says it in verse 17, and they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, yea, and to protect the land unto the laying down of their lives, yea, even they covenanted that they would never give up their liberty but that they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. So this is a completely different identity than what it's they... It's a very different covenant, yeah. It's a very different covenant than what they had been under as anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They understood the covenant before, but now they actually change like a national identity. They, they change that, and it's all about the Nephites and the land and the liberty that they go out and under. And so they remain true and faithful to that. It's that whole, if you're going to do this then actually be true and faithful to it. And so they go out and they do that. And so I found that that switch of identity, that Mormon would even bring in that switch of identity as as a thing that was powerful enough that he would even you know, mention that. Well, and, and I see, you know, these are the these are these young men. They're it's pretty common for young men to see war as somewhat glamorous or glorious, right? And so this idealism that's ingrained in them, they're kind of caught up in this whole uh, war preparations that the Nephites are doing and and this mobilization, so to speak, that's happening among the Nephites. You know, there, there's another theme throughout all these chapters that, that's constantly repeated and, and Mer Captain Moroni brings it out a lot. And it's, it's the equivocation of preparations for war with righteousness. You know, that's that becomes in terms of like the Nephite narrative and identity that that becomes very uh, problematic or antithetical. I I, I could say to uh, the doctrine of Christ that he presents when he comes to the Nephites, 
And and it, but again, we see this repeated throughout here that there there is this narrative that the Nephites, if they're preparing for war, that means they're righteous. And if they're doing anything that's not preparing for war, then that means they're not righteous. And uh, and again, we see this repeated uh, multiple times throughout these chapters. So something to kind of watch out for. And it, and it kind of shows sort of where the Nephite mentality is right now and uh, and goes to support sort of that theme that I was talking about earlier, where I, I feel like these chapters are showing us that the war is a great distraction from the building of the kingdom of God. Yeah, we see that when in Moroni's epistle to Pahoran, because it he equates not getting any supplies as basically Pahoran is a devil. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so it's like the preparations for war. Now, I think in a lot of ways, most people would respond that that's because the Nephites were fighting for a divine cause, that God had caused them to fight, you know, that they felt it was their duty to fight for their families, even under bloodshed. And they, they, they felt like they were fighting for the cause of the Christians and they were fighting for their God and they were fighting for these things to worship as they wanted to. And so anything that would derail that cause was therefore evil. And so if they lost, God wasn't with them. And I mean, this is a very classic war narrative that is kind of victor's justice and victor's righteousness, that those who win wars are the righteous one, that only, only righteous good people are the ones that win wars. And we see that in Alma 59 in verse 11, when they lose, when they lose, what was it, Nephiha, I believe it was. And they begin to be exceedingly sorrowful and they begin to doubt that it was because of the wickedness of the people that they lost this city. And so they needed to double down on their righteousness. Um, on this. So yeah, it's preparations for war become the MO for their righteousness. Um, I'm finding here in chapter, you know, moving through with, uh, with Moroni and Amaron, you know, Moroni ends up trying to have this treaty with, with Amaron because Amaron has collected prisoners of war, entire families, men, women, and children. Moroni, on the other hand, has only taken prisoners of war that were men that were fighting. And so he wanted to do an exchange with Amaron. One slave, or I'm sorry, well, one prisoner of war. It's the same as a slave. One prisoner of war who was a man for a family, for a man. And so Amaron is like, yeah, this sounds great because I have a bunch of mouths to feed. I'm not going to do anything with the women and the children. So yeah, go ahead and, and do this. But then it's this thing that Amaron's like, I'm not going to stop coming against war with you. And Moroni's like, that's it. No deal. And then Moroni just goes through and creates this really big stratagem about getting all of the men, women, and children back. I don't know if, was he actually, did he actually walk back on his, uh, on his original agreement? What was his original agreement that, uh, that they had to throw down all their weapons of war and they had to leave? Or was it just that he would exchange prisoners? Well, if we, um, if we take this as the full text of their epistles, um, then, you know, Moroni says um, in verse 11, he says, um, therefore, I will close my epistle by telling you that I will not exchange prisoners, save it be on conditions that you will deliver up a man and his wife and his children for one prisoner. If this be the case that you will do it, I will exchange. And so that's his condition that you'll do this. And Amaron agrees to that. And then Moroni says, 
Oh, never mind. I don't, you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so it is kind of odd, you know, that, that it seems like Moroni is kind of going back on his word with, with Amaron here. And, and I don't really know how to contextualize that necessarily to, to say that's not the case. But, it, but in terms of uh, Moroni's intentions, it could be entirely plausible that Moroni's intention was never to actually exchange prisoners with Amaron. Because here at the beginning of chapter 44, it says that uh, in verse 3, Moroni resolved upon a stratagem. And to me, it's it's possible, and we're not told here, but it's uh, it, it could indicate here that Moroni, all of this, because Amaron sends uh, his servant to Moroni, and then Moroni sends the letter back to Amaron. And um, all of this could simply be a ruse to discover the location of the prisoners that Moroni doesn't know where they're kept. And um, all of this, you know, maybe he follows the the messenger of Amaron or somehow in some other way, again, we're not told is able to, through this exchange, able to devise what the location of the prisoners is. So this was all just a ploy to find out their location so that then he could go and rescue them. And I think that's that's very plausible here, just considering that Amaron agrees to it, and then Moroni says, "Well, never mind. I don't really want to do it anyway." <laughs> right. Um, so uh, you know, I I think that uh, again, you know, how Moroni does this is is pretty neat. Um, the way he goes about this, and and he he does a you know a pretty good job. I, I mean, I'm not a military commander, but. Um, in in minimizing the amount of bloodshed here, right? You know, he just wants to rescue the prisoners and he goes about it in a way that uh, really means that there's not some large battle where a lot of people are killed. Um, and, uh, you know, kudos to Moroni on that. And I, I definitely see Mormon in, in using that. If, if this is, again, some sort of text uh, propaganda, so to speak, to his own troops, you know, using Moroni as an example of someone who isn't out for blood, right? And you, you guys shouldn't be out for blood either. Um, but uh, you know, you know, back to your point about, or back to the the idea that the Lamanites take the whole families, and you know, the Nephites only take the Lamanite um, men. Well, it's it's more likely that the Lamanites were only sending their men to battle, not with all of their families, especially since they were invading Nephite lands. Um, and the Nephites seem to have their families travel with the armies. Um, in fact, I, I don't know exactly where the verse is. We might come across it later, but it, it talks about how um, you know the provisions and the armies were sent to support that many men. And then it says, and their families. And so it seems like these armies, the people that are sent they're not men leaving their families to go to war. It's almost like families are going to war together, which is really kind of interesting and a little bit of an insight into Nephite culture, you know, that they would do that as a family, go out to war together. And it does sort of lend a little bit, uh, you know, fleshes out a little bit Moroni's threat to Amaron that he's going to arm all his women and children as well <laughs> to go and, and take them out because they're with them. You know, they're they're right there on the, the, the front lines and, and ready to do it. So anyway, I just thought that was, that was an interesting insight into the, the difference of, of cultures between the two peoples. 
That is interesting. That is interesting. You know, in verse 7 here, chapter 54, in Moroni's epistle to Amaron, you know, I had to kind of laugh at this because in in verse 7 it says, and I would tell you these things if you were capable of hearkening unto them. Basically, that the justice of God and the sword of his almighty wrath was going to come down on him. He says, and I, and I would tell you concerning that awful hell that awaits to receive such murderers as thou and thy brother have been, except ye repent and withdraw your murderous purposes and return your armies to your own lands. And I think it's kind of funny because I'm wondering what, what hell is it that awaits such murderers? You know, in the LDS narrative, we have this really interesting concept of heaven and hell where we don't have a hell. <laughs> as it, That is at least as far as like the... The, the dichotomy of heaven and hell is concerned that uh, the Christian world holds. We have this whole three degrees of glory, and then we have outer darkness. And we consider basically anything outside the presence of the Father as hell. So anything less than a celestial glory is hell. And so, but yet Joseph Smith said that the bottom level of the celestial kingdom is so much more glorious than this, right? And then this, than this earth. And so I, I, I kind of chuckle on this and I'm like, was he talking about spirit prison? Is he talking about that spirit prison place where you go into spirit prison and then paradise? You know, Alma talks some about the state of being after we leave this life. And you and I talked about how since Alma has talked about this, we've kind of expanded and more has been revealed about how that all works. And so it's not necessarily in contradiction to Alma, but we've definitely expanded on it. So I have to wonder what, what this is, this hell that awaits these murderers and the people who don't repent you know even uh, even the hitlers of the world get the lowest level of the celestial kingdom right so it's just it's it's kind of an interesting breathing and moroni then concludes he's like i am in my anger he's in his anger a lot this moroni's got a pretty hot temper and this is what fascinates me so much about moroni is that he is angry all over the place and he is in his wrath all over the place and he's mad and he's just like he's got like one one gear and it's like just wrath and anger and just 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 ah but then at that point you have this other side of moroni who mid-battle i mean i've never been in a battle like that hand-to-hand combat in the middle of a war with swords and literally the psychological effect of killing people in close proximity and contact where you see what you're doing right there and yet then having the presence of mind and heart to be able to call a complete end to the bloodshed just to be able to tell the people who are remaining hey you can go if you want to go if you promise not to come back again yeah moroni seems to have pretty pretty decent self-control yeah, you know, he, he, it's like his rhetoric is like off the rails, but when it actually comes <laughs> to his actual actions, he's just, he's right there, right? And he, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't vary from the right hand to the left. He's he's just, he walks this really straight line of, of his own, of these principles that he believes in and that he holds to. And even if, you know, us looking at it, you know, 2000 years later can look back on that and and have a few different critiques and be like, man, this guy isn't necessarily consistent all the time with his rhetoric and his actions. And maybe he's a little bit more nationalistic and a Nephite than for my taste or whatever. And that for even what Christ would later reveal to the Nephites still, what a powerful man to be able to hold that tension of the cause of the Christians and, and and the cause to be in all of these wars, you and I ended up adding up just before we started that 
he went in to become the general when he was 25. He dies when he's 44 and 45. So he dies young. And yeah, even by ancient standards, that's probably pretty young. Right. But yet he, his whole life is in war. And so he maintains this cause of the Christian Christians in war. And man, I've never, I've never been in war. I've never been in that, in that place. I've never been in that situation. And I, I know people who have, and I know the hell that it is. And for him to keep his presence of mind, I can only imagine Mormon is going back to what we just began with. I can only imagine Mormon reading about Moroni and just exactly why Mormon loved Moroni so much and found such a kindred spirit in him because Mormon who has no example in his own life, no one there next to him. And he reads about this guy who has that presence of mind to stop the war mid battle and to beg the enemy to just surrender so they can let him go. And to be in that kind of presence that he, he keeps his same standards and those same core principles the whole way through. It's just absolutely amazing who and what this guy is. Um, so, you know, Moroni ends up having his, it out with Amaron. They fight. And then we end up with Helaman. And Helaman 56 through 58, he then starts to recount in an epistle to Moroni about everything that had happened with the 2000 sons. Uh, he calls them his sons, right? He says, "For they're, they're worthy to be called my sons. And they called him their father and about the covenant that their fathers were going to break unless they came into fight. And so they, they stepped into fight so their parents wouldn't do that. And just the power that they had. And so, you know, to read a little bit here in chapter 56 and verse 44 through 48, therefore, uh, so this is Helaman and he's, and I think you're right, Ben, I don't know if Helaman actually prepared or had in mind that these these stripling warriors, now stripling just means young. So we're, we're talking maybe they're 14, maybe 15 years old kind of a thing. And so they're young and he sees that now they're in a place where we have to fight, but I, I'm not going to lead you into fighting unless you are absolutely sure about it. So he turns to the 2000 stripling warriors. Therefore, what say ye, my sons, will you go against them to battle? And now I say unto you, my beloved brother Moroni, that never had I seen so great courage, nay, amongst all the Nephites. For as I had ever called them my sons, for they were all of them very young, even so they said unto me, Father, behold, our God is with us, and he will not suffer that we should fall. Then let us go forth, that we may slay, that we will not slay our brethren if they would let us alone. Therefore let us go, lest they should overpower the army of Antipas. And they never had fought, and they did not fear death, and they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers and they did than they did upon their lives. Yea, they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers, saying, We do not doubt, our mothers knew it. You know, these are powerful words. And Yeah, it makes me want to go fight with Helaman. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is great stuff to go out there to do this. You know, I'm Mark Twain ends up writing this this short story. You're just a few years before he dies. He doesn't allow it to be published. It's called The War Prayer. And it's a beautiful story. And he says that it's one of the most honest things that he ever wrote. And he said, it's so honest that basically people, you're not allowed to publish honest things was his thought. So he didn't, it was so honest that he didn't want himself or his children 
to have the ramifications of that would come back on this on this short story that he wrote. But basically, in a nutshell, what the story entails is that there are two cities and they're going to war against each other. And about both of them have their churches. And so he takes the story of one of the one of the the villages and the Sunday sermon that they have as the preacher gets up and starts to get the congregation going and invokes the name of God to be able to bless their sons as they go to war against the other village and to bless them, to, to, to make their swords shine, to make them, to make them conquer and to make them go out and and to return victorious, safe and sound alive, which is every parent's prayer whenever their child has gone out to fight in war. And while the preacher is praying, this unknown figure, this unknown person, ends up walking up to the front and tells the preacher that he is a messenger from Almighty God and that he has heard the preacher's prayer and that God has sent him there to actually deliver another message. Because for every uttered prayer, there is an unanswered, there is, there is a silent prayer that is uttered. So there's not just one prayer that's been given, there's two. And the messenger sent from God is sent there to be able to deliver the second part of that prayer. The implied prayer. The implied prayers were right. And in that, this unknown guy ends up praying to God about bringing destruction and death and pain and turmoil and fear and everything upon the other people. And about how in our prayer about bringing us victory and safety and and victory through going out and and conquering we're we're having an implied prayer that the other side loses the other side is destroyed that the other side is is made desolate that's just the cause of war for war to be won for war to be won either one side has to not fight or one side has to conquer and in this i i often wonder in these stories i can't help but read in the victory of these stories that the Lamanites, you know, we, we found out through Amalekai that most of these Lamanites didn't want to fight. And I, and I love the fact that that's why Moroni stops so many times to allow those who don't want to fight to not fight. And in fact, you and I were joking that Moroni and Helaman, they actually stop sometimes mid-battle, make them covenant not to uh, fight anymore, and then they send those people over to the people of Ammon. <laughs> and I love that. I absolutely love and adore that. And yet here we have the stripling warriors, and for as much as Helaman absolutely revels in the fact that on two occasions they go into battle, and he says on the second occasion not one person was lost, but not even then not one person had not received multiple wounds, and, and hundreds of them had actually fainted for loss of blood, but they didn't lose one. But the thing has been, as we never hear the story about how the sons on the other side, the ones who were slain, the Lamanites were also children of parents who loved them. They were also parents. They were also brothers. They were also sisters. We don't have the record of the Lamanite loss of those people who fought against the stripling warriors. We don't have their message. We only have the Nephite message of those who won in this case. God delivered, God takes, you know, God delivered them. God made a magnificent, and man, what a magnificent feat that is to be able to go into battle. 2,000 young teenagers who have their trust in God and have their prayers answered. 
but Ben, I really want to know about what happened to the other side. I want to know who they were. I want to know their story. I want to know their hopes and their dreams and their ambitions. I want to know who those Lamanites were and what drove them. Was it all simply hate? I don't, I don't think so. And so even those who were on the fence and maybe even had a hatred for the Nephites and they just didn't live according to certain narratives, we know from stories like in Jacob that even though the Nephites thought they were the most righteous ones, that the Lamanites actually loved their families more. You know, who were the Lamanites that died? And we just don't get that in this text. And so every time I read this, I am very sympathetic to the to the sons of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, these sons of Helaman. But now I, I'm wanting to know the other side. I want to know who who those people were. You know, we get we get little tiny tidbits of that fact that you mentioned that the Lamanites really didn't want to fight probably any more than the Nephites did, despite the Nephite narrative that the Lamanites just wanted to murder them. Um, you know, most of the chances that the Lamanites get to surrender and, you know, go back home to their families or, or whatever, they take them. They take those opportunities. Even when Moroni, so like when Moroni here goes to liberate all the prisoners, he searches and he finds someone who's a descendant of, of Laman, you know, that knows their language, can speak without an accent, I imagine is, is what he was looking for, right? Um, someone that could culturally pull it off uh, linguistically to go uh, and present himself as if he were a Lamanite and, and give them the wine to, to drunken them. And this was someone um, who had been one of the guards of the king of the Lamanites that Amalickiah had murdered. So this was somebody who was ostensibly a loyal Lamanite, right? But when he saw what was happening with, you know, uh, tricking them into war, he was like, I don't want any part of that <laughs> and, and goes over and and then not only that, you know, later in these chapters, when they get a ton of prisoners together, and I'll have to search and, and find it here in a bit, but after they uh, basically take uh, a bunch of Lamanite prisoners, here we go, in, in chapter 62, this is after Moroni has gone back and, and um, taken out the kingmen and then he's marched with his armies and, and they go and they're, they're going to drive the Lamanites out. They are able to use a stratagem to, to take one of the cities back and then they have a ton of Lamanite prisoners. And it says, now it came to pass that many of the Lamanites that were prisoners were desirous to join the people of Ammon and become a free people. Well... <laughs> What do you mean? Like, how did they know this was an option? Right? Um, and it came to pass that as many as were desirous unto them, it was granted according to their desires. Therefore, all the prisoners of the Lamanites did join the people of Ammon. Yeah. Wow. Like, here's a little, here's a little tidbit here that I feel like I haven't ever discussed before. Because to me, this really references and goes back to to one of the um sort of 
questions or what ifs that I had last time we had a discussion, which was from Alma chapter 47, when Amalekiah conspires to be king and he goes um, and and is tasked by the king with going and getting the majority of the people who don't want to go to war to join them and come to war. And so he goes and he poisons Lahontai and, and so forth. But it says that those people had fixed in their minds, it says in chapter 47, verse 6. Uh, no, sorry, not not verse 6. Um, yes, yes, verse 6, sorry. They had fixed in their minds with a determined resolution that they would not be subjected to go against the Nephites. And and here we con- we're constantly finding these cases where the Lamanites really aren't interested in war any more than the Nephites are. In fact, they may be even less interested ultimately, but there are many other uh, forces and intrigues that are that are driving them to this. But when given the opportunity, they actually reject war more readily than the Nephites do many times. And and like I was saying about chapter forty-seven, I feel like that really was was potentially a huge missed opportunity on the part of the Nephites, where these people would have been open to their message um, of peace, of not necessarily maybe converting to the gospel and joining the people of Ammon, but at least being willing to potentially defect or resist um, uh, the efforts that the king had to start this new war, that Amalekiah was making to start this new war. And the Nephites, you know, just apparently made no efforts into trying to, you know, diplomatically, proactively seek peace with the Lamanites. They were all is focusing their attention on stopping Amalekiah from going over to the Lamanites and stirring them up. But there doesn't appear to have been any efforts to actually go to the Lamanites, you know, and reach out and actually say, hey, we, what Amalekiah is going to tell you isn't true. We, we really just want peace. <laughs> and uh, right. anyway, this, this part here where they get this huge army and they all want to join the people of Ammon and be done with this war thing, because this is just awful. This has been horrific. We've been at war for all of these years and we're just all dying. And this is terrible. We want to go back to our homes and our families or we, we just want peace. So yeah, we want to join the people of Ammon. We've heard that's a good place. And uh, again, I, uh, the Nephites here, you know, that this happens, but it could. I feel like this could have happened many years previously, and a lot of this war could have been prevented. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating when we talk about the Lamanites and from their side of it and the small little clues that we get. You know, there's this narrative that even lasts today. It, it still goes on today about how each side of the war and each side of, the, you know, each country that simply because we live in a country, we should fight in the wars of that country. And I think about all the times when Latter-day Saints have been told to fight in in the wars, you know, that, that we've been told from our religious leaders that we have a, a duty to fight in the wars. And yet there's accounts of Latter-day Saints pointing rifles at Latter-day Saints and killing them. People who we had no business fighting with. People who had we had no... Who on the other side of that, in reality, is my brother. He believes the same way I do. He's a member of the same church that I am. He believes in the same restored gospel that I do. And yet I have unwittingly pointed my rifle at him. I've pulled the trigger and I've ended his life. I have killed him. Because I wear one uniform... 
and he wears one uniform. And we, in any other context, we may have been best friends. I may have been on a mission. I may have even gone over there and have known him. He may have even invited me over for dinner after church. And yet because of some grand narrative, because of leaders, we are now fighting against each other. And, be, and somehow that makes that okay. And I've thought a lot about the quote. There's this quote from Hermann Goering, who was one of the Nazi military commanders during the Nuremberg trials. It's a very famous quote. But he says, why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back from his farm torn to pieces? Naturally, the people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. This is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is for democracy or for a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. See, voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of their leaders. This is easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and then denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in every country. I'm like, man, if this guy wasn't a Mormon, I don't know if this guy read the Book of Mormon or not, right? Because <laughs> here, here, even on the Nephite side, you had a group of people who didn't want to fight in the war anymore. And yeah, they these king men rose up. Yeah, they wanted a different form of government. Yeah, did they rise up in, in a way that they wanted, they were a majority vote? Were there a minority vote? I don't know. Were they talking to the Lamanites? Sure. But in this one, it's really interesting is that they didn't fight. That was the one thing. They just refused to fight. Like the king men's before. Moroni comes in and kills them all. You denounce the pacifists. You end up asserting that, uh, that you are under attack. You assert your local nationalistic patriotism of exposing the country to danger. And then you go to war with the other country. And what's fascinating is that there's evidence that the Lamanites were doing the same thing. That Amalekiah and Amaron and all of the Lamanite leaders, whenever they go to war, they're largely doing the same thing. And just like you said, there's all the evidence where back in back in last week's verses with Amalekiah, when he's trying through espionage to become the leader of the Lamanites, they don't want to fight against the Nephites. They're like, why would we want? We don't want to do that. But yet there's always this moral obligation that comes along with government and state nationalistic identity that you're required to, to fight for your side. And here we find out the narratives of this are so strong. And, and this is really what got me kind of on a path of nonviolence was when I first started to, it, it, it's just this weird idea that stuck out to me one day. I don't know where it came from, but it was this question that said, how are, how are parents led to accepting that their child is going to go over to another land that they've never been to to kill someone they've never had a problem with and have that be okay. And not only that, but to feel shame and remorse if they don't go and if they choose not to go. To feel like my child is a coward if they don't go. What, what is it about society? What is it about the narrative? What is it about how do we program a parent to override their basic biology to send their child of course, they're going to mourn if they die, but the basic narrative about how to do that. And 
that's what got me studying nationalism. That's what got me into studying identity. That's what got me into studying a lot of these, this non, the nonviolent narratives is because that did not make any sense to me because for as much as my side does that, and I am like, well, my side is obviously the virtuous side. My side is the one that is presented by God. You know, I love, there's a book that I have ordered that has gone through and what it's decided to do is it's taken all of the preacher's rhetoric on the Germany side of World War II and all the preacher's rhetoric and uh, pro-war of all the American preachers during World War II. And they've taken out any reference to what side they are so you can't tell what it is. And then they've just read it and it's like basically like a guess which side said it. And the fact is, is you can't tell which side says it because the war rhetoric is the same on both sides that the Germany was saying that they had God's, you know, that their country was established by God, that they were fighting for their liberty and their freedom and their way of being and their prosperity as the exact same thing that the American narrative was saying as well. Now, of course, we look at the Germany side. I'm like, yeah, but they killed 6 million Jews. I'm like, well, well, that's atrocious. That's horrific. You know, we, we nuclear bombed two cities in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, it's, arguable people and that's a really big arguable debate that opens a big can of worms when we start to talk about how we did that because when i first started talking about so speaking against nagasaki and hiroshima at first people would say you know that saved a hundred thousand soldiers lives i'm like wow that's a lot of soldiers how do you get to that number and then there'd be an article that they'd post and then over the years been since that's happened so i've been on what social media since what 2007 so in the last 13 years that number has increased every single time, every single yeah. time the anniversary for Hiroshima and Nagasaki come up and the anti-war starts and the, and the pro-war starts, that number has escalated. And in fact, I remember arguing at one point after like five years laughing about this trend. I think it had gone up to like 400,000 soldiers were saved then at that time. I started joking that pretty soon we're going to, it, it's going to be a million people were saved. And sure enough, within about two years, now it's a million people that were saved because we dropped the ball. It started in all the news. all And so as these pro-war narratives have kept on going, even in our modern day of an event that happened so long ago, we're still justifying that, what uh, J. Ruben Clark called the, the fiendish act of butchery that we did in, in indiscriminate killing. But these narratives have never changed. The Nephite narratives, the Lamanite narratives, the protecting our lives and our women and our children and our freedom and our God, our enemies are preaching the same narratives. And it always fascinates me, especially when you see these Lamanites who don't want to fight. The only reason they fight is because their society told them that they had to, that their cause was the just cause, that their side was the right side, and that they needed to go out and they needed to fight. And it's the same on both. You know, we do see a little bit here, like a Malachi, he said that his his sight started, started to doubt, I think this is what, in Alma 47, that his side, or Alma 46, that his side started to doubt the justness of their cause. And so, you know, he doubled down on it. But otherwise, that's all it is. It's the same wartime propaganda, and we see it on both sides here in the text. You know, there's... There's a lot to dissect here. Uh, not sure how much time you want to take on it, but there's a lot to dissect here in the letter of Moroni to Pahorin and then Pahorin's response. Again, kind of goes back to the thing we said before that I really kind of have a lot of more questions than answers on some of the things that are said in this chapter. 
Um, because th- there seems to be some contradictions in the narrative here because um, Moroni is constantly going on about how the Lord will preserve them if they're righteous and they prepare for war. And then he says this to Pahorin. He says, do you suppose that because so many of your brethren have been killed, it is because of their wickedness? I say unto you, if you have supposed this, you have supposed in vain. For I say unto you, there are many who have fallen by the sword, and behold, it is to your condemnation. For the Lord suffereth the righteous to be slain, that his justice and judgment may come upon the wicked. Therefore, ye need not suppose that the righteous are lost because they are slain. But behold, they do enter into the rest of the Lord their God. Well, that's kind of an echo of Alma 14 with uh, Ammonihah, right? You know, mm-hmm. that the Lord suffereth this thing to be done. But but it's certainly, uh, you know, his rhetoric to Pahoran is certainly counter uh, all that's been going on with these war chapters where it's been constantly told us that, you know, oh, well, if if the we lose a city and lots of people are slain, then that means that was because of our wickedness um, or or. And so it, I'm not sure exactly how to reconcile this. Maybe he's just talking like in a collective sense, right, that um, it, we're not saying that the people that die were uh, were wicked, but our people, the Nephites, um, are wicked and therefore it causes some of us to be killed. Um, but I'm not sure where the line is drawn on that. You know, how come, uh, you know, it's evidence of our unrighteousness that our people, the Nephites, are killed, but it's not evidence of our unrighteousness that, you know, a lot of the Lamanites are killed as well. So it, it's not really clear to me, um, you know, what the consistent principle is here that that Moroni is trying to, to draw out. Um, but anyway, if you have any thoughts on that. I have no idea either, because there's this other thing that he brings out too in verse 33 when he's talking to Pahoran, and he says, you know that you do transgress the laws of God, and you do know that you have trampled them under your feet. Behold, the Lord saith unto me, if those whom ye have appointed your governors do not repent of their sins and iniquities, ye shall go up to battle against them. This is a really, really interesting verse for me. Um... And it kind of fits into exactly what you were talking about, just these open questions. And when we started, I said, there, I have a lot of quite more questions than I do answers. And I think most of them happen in chapter 60, because Moroni just goes off on Pohoran about all these things that he knows and that God has told him. And that, uh, and basically, there's so many assumptions. All he knows is that he's not getting supplies. But then on the other side of it, it's just that he's making all of these accusations when it come to find out, what happened is back home in Zarahemla, there's a group of people that overthrew Pahoran. Pahoran ended up going off to Gideon. Now Pahoran's trying to get him supplies, but he can't because he can't rally the people well enough. So this whole thing about the Lord telling him that he's, you know, that he has to go out against the governors if they don't repent, well, that's not really Pahoran. You know, Pahoran's not really doing that. And so these narratives that Moroni is living under, as far as him going back to Zarahemla, just aren't holding water, you know, quite yet. So I don't know. I don't. I don't have any answers. I, I, I still have a lot of questions. Well, uh, Moroni takes a few things here that um, you know he he seems to apply them in a way that uh, I I wouldn't. Um, you know, he's he's obviously he's trying to to use sort of a religious undertone in scripture to to call to repentance as it were, right? So verse 23, do you suppose that God will look upon you as guiltless while you sit and behold these things? 
Behold, I say unto you, Nay, now I would that you should remember that God has said that the inward vessel shall be cleansed first, and then shall the outward vessel be cleansed also. And so the implication of this is that, hey, you know, we have to go in and kill these people that are insurrectionists among our people before we can win this outward battle. We have to have an inward battle before we can have the outward battle. But like, to me, that scripture has always, always, always and everywhere had individual implications about our own heart and mind. And I've never, ever, ever, except in this context, seen it as applied in a way that's like a collectivist, you know, a nationalist type of, of application. And again, Moroni does seem to be be using a lot of religious rhetoric in his um, accusations of Bahorin here that, that don't really hold up, which all of this, you know, just goes to show that that Moroni is really, really venting here to Pahorin. <laughs> and bless his heart, Pahorin, you know, he just really takes it in stride and really is 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 not offended like I guess he, he really could be in this scenario. But I, I also think that uh, Pahorin could stand up to Moroni, not, not in terms of like saying, oh, well, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. Why are you accusing me of this? But he could stand up to him a little more in terms of his his moral courage, because Pohorin kind of goes along with Moroni in a little bit of scriptural interpretation that I, I don't think is consistent. You know, here he says in verse 10 of chapter 61, And now behold, we will resist wickedness even unto bloodshed. We would not shed the blood of the Lamanites if they would stay in their own land. We would not shed the blood of our brethren if they would not rise up in rebellion and take the sword against us. We would subject ourselves to the yoke of bondage if it were requisite the justice of God, or if he should command us to do so. Well, that's that's not that's not how it works, Pahorin, because Doctrine and Covenants 98 doesn't say only subject yourself to the yoke of bondage if the Lord commands you to do so. It's the opposite of that. It says, don't go to battle. Don't go to war unless the Lord commands you to do so. So maybe Pahorin doesn't fully understand that. But in terms of if we're to compare this to the standard set forth in DNC 98, you know, Pahorin's got a little bit backwards here. But behold, he doth not command us that we shall subject ourselves to our enemies, but that we should put our trust in him and he will deliver us. <laughs> and that's an interesting verse because then he goes on to say, okay, the Lord will deliver us. All right, let's get out our swords and go kill people. <laughs> Therefore, my beloved brother Moroni, let us resist evil, and whatsoever evil we cannot resist with our words, yea, such as rebellions and dissensions, let us resist them with our swords, that we may retain our freedom, that we may rejoice in the great privilege of our church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. Wow, that's just, that's dripping with sort of like nationalistic, religious undertone and that, that war prayer narrative, right? And, you know, as much respect as I have for, for Pahoran and Moroni, I really feel like they haven't got this narrative and this discussion straight here. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't think they're being consistent with the principles of their own faith. Yeah. So I, I, I have this section of scripture extremely marked up. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of, it's kind of it's sparse throughout some of the war chapters, but man, this part is like really lit up. And, and part of that here is, in verse 10, and we will resist wickedness even unto bloodshed. Then he comes down again and he says that, you know, we would subject ourselves to the yoke of bondage. You quoted that. And then he says, therefore, 
let us resist evil. Whatsoever is evil that we cannot resist with our words and rebellions, let us resist with our swords. And that's the moral prerogative he's living on. You know, and this is 62 BC. And what's going to be funny is in 3480, uh, you know, almost, you know, almost 100 years later after this, there's going to be this moment when the Savior comes. And the first thing that he's going to tell them is he's going to come down and he says, let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more or less than this cometh of evil. And behold, it is written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you shall not resist evil. Oh my goodness. And yet Pohorin here. <laughs> Pohorin. Therefore, my beloved brethren, let us resist evil. But then the Christ comes and tells us, I say unto you, resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. See, in this way, Pahorn is saying, listen, we have been, in his view, we've not been commanded to give up ourselves or to allow ourselves to be subjected to the yoke of bondage. But yet, the Christ, when he comes, he speaks directly to the victim. And he always speaks to the victim. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple here in Bountiful in 3 Nephi 12, that's all Christ talks to, is the person in bondage. It's the victim. It's the one in which there's a power play. Christ doesn't talk to the person who's hitting. He doesn't talk to the person who is conscripting. He doesn't talk to the person who is taking someone to a court of law unjustly. Christ is talking to the victim of all those situations. He's talking to the person who's been brought into bondage. And Christ is doing this because he's teaching them the way of the Christ in how they seek deliverance. See, it's through self-sacrifice, it's the way of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that you get deliverance. It wasn't through their sword. That, that, that's not the Lord, necessarily the Lord's way. Now, the Lord can and will deliver them physically in degrees. But physical deliverance was never really the end point. In fact, Jacob talks about this in 2 Nephi when he's lambasting the people in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 about them picking a king because they are afraid of death. They want to protect themselves against the Lamanites. And Jacob gets up and starts talking to them about Isaiah and about how they shouldn't give up their eternal reward for some temporary momentary fear that of them dying. It's like, and then he even goes on to say, he's like, listen, even God is going to make himself flesh and God is going to die. You're not getting out of this life without dying. Stop fearing death, basically. Even God's going to have experienced death. And yet here we have the same thing that in this, he's talking about resisting evil, that whoso will resist evil with his words, then let's resist him with our swords. But yet Christ comes and he says, no, turn the other cheek. If any man sues thee, give him to give him what they have. If anybody conscripts you to go a mile, go with them too. Behold, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use and persecute you. Because the way of the true Christian, as followed in the Beatitudes, Christ comes along and says, And blessed are they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, for you shall be given great joy and exceedingly glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. See, this is him saying, listen, we would subject, our, uh, subject ourselves to the yoke of bondage if it were requisite with the justice of God. And yet when God comes, that's exactly what he's saying. 
whenever you are coming to conflict with a brother, agree with thine adversary while thou are in the way with him. Resist not evil. Now this gets into some really powerful discussion, and we can have almost an entire hour discussion on simply what it means to not resist evil. God is not, Christ isn't here not talking that we give in to temptation. That's not the point here. It's that you you don't return like for like. It's that you stop fighting against those things, and you just, you almost just let reality be reality. And you become as the Antonifi-Lehi's who go out and prostrate and let what happens, happens. That's the way of the Christ. And yet Pahorn here is just, they don't understand it yet. The Nephites just don't understand it yet. And Pahorn, Pahorn's uh, message here really, really demonstrates that quite clearly. Yeah, and I, and I think it's powerful and it's totally appropriate to have it right here in the middle of these um, as we are gaining a greater insight into the Nephite narrative where they have these scriptures, things like verse 13, which verse 13 by itself is amazing. It's wonderful. Like it's, it's so packed full of this truth, but, but then you see the whole narrative that they've built around that and how they, how they justify it and, and go about it. And, and this is so appropriate to have this here as we're, we're building up to the time, the coming of Christ and what he's going to teach the people and completely change their whole identity and narrative around away from this nationalistic and, um, you know, sort of, uh, war prone, not, not war prone, you know, even, um, but, uh, but definitely not a renouncing of war and proclaiming of peace, right. Um, into a people that, um, uh, are, try to avoid contention and not just try to avoid contention, but are actively seeking peace as when he, you know, that's one of the first things that he tells the Nephites when he come to them, comes to them to not contend with each other. That is the way of the devil. That's what he's seeking to get you to do um, with anger. And so it, like I said, it's very appropriate to have this narrative here as we, we see this as a contrast to the society um, and the perspective that Christ is trying to bring to this people when he comes. So this ties back a little bit to what we were talking about when ne- or, um, Alma was talking to his son Helaman, and he was prophesying about what was going to happen to the people of the Nephites, right? And I had a, I went on sort of a little uh, monologue about <laughs> nationalism and stuff uh, in, in our last podcast uh, because of how uh, Alma uh, frames this whole identity of the Nephites and that he sees them as being destroyed um, in the hundreds of years after Christ. And he says this very people, which which is so a fascinating way to put it because they really aren't the same people at all. You know, this is this is a people that is 450, almost 500 years before this other people that Nef- that uh, I keep saying Nephi, but it's Alma <laughs> is prophesying will be destroyed, and yet he calls them the very same people. And again, I see that as an identifying of their identity, or you know, pointing out the the fact that these Nephites, four hundred years after Christ, are going to have that same nationalistic mindset and identity that we see. Helaman right now among the Nephites and this identity, this mindset, and this perspective, it's what's going to lead to their destruction. 
And so I think that's so interesting uh, when we can, when we tie that together with this idea that, you know, Mormon is trying to fight against that in a rhetorical sense or in a metaphorical sense, I should say, among his people. He's trying to dispel that, that bloodlust and that hatred of the other, of the Lamanite among his own people, the Nephites. And potentially, you know, one of the things we posited is, is the way that Mormon does that is the use of this, this period of Nephite history um, with Captain Moroni, where he tries to present to them an example of, of someone who was able to overcome in battle without becoming bitter and bloodthirsty and, um, you know, always just seeking the destruction of the Lamanites, rather just the defense of his own people. Yeah, the nationalistic narratives that they live by, and it's almost like a tribalism narrative as the Nephites versus the Lamanites, you know, going back to as we talked about the anti-Nephi-Lehi identity, the transition of the, the sons of Helaman to a Nephite identity, how they see themselves and their own narratives that they live under against the Lamanites, and how that is very self-serving. There's an article I read, and I, I tried to find it before we, we actually uh, recorded but it was this analysis that goes back and takes in several chapters of the war chapters here. And from a historian's point of view, asks ourselves, how, how did they know these things? How did they actually know this happens? You know, like when Amalekiah goes up and he is there in private and he, he kills people. And the only people who know about it are his one or two servants that are extremely loyal to him. How how do people find out about that? How did the historian and how did Mormon and the record and everything find out about that? And the article was pretty convincing that in a lot of ways, this fits the patterns of wartime propaganda. That, you know, this may have been true, it may not have been true, or it may have been a story that was collected and propagated among the Nephites about what happened and about how those stories went down in order to try to justify going to war against those people, and that those records of war propaganda were preserved as a part of the historical record, and then later recorded by Mormon. We just don't know. But there are a lot of these moments in this record of like, well, how, how did you know that? How did the historian possibly figure that out? And, and a lot of the times we say, well, you know, maybe God revealed it, but, you know, there were a lot of uh, answers given as to why that's not the best answer that we can possibly have and use. But yet we see here the Nephites are being preserved. There's multiple cases where he or the Mormon talks about the people who are preserved and Moroni and Helaman and the actual characters in the text are talking about being preserved. And so again, we go back to the whole good, better, and best narrative. Will God preserve people who are trying to find serve him and find him and rely on him? even if by degrees, and the answer is always yes, he will. Is this? Does this mean that this is the perfect way of doing things? Does this mean that this is God's way of doing things? Does this mean that this is the best way that it could have been? I, I honestly don't think so. I think there's enough evidence here in the text to show that there could have been other better ways of doing it. I think as we started this discussion to see that there's a, there's a, I think there's a better than likely not, not chance that these war chapters were used by Mormon for his own people's benefit and may have been some of the first things that he actually wrote and put together based on the things that he emphasizes, the things that he's looking at, the stories that he's telling, how he's telling the story, 
what parts of the story he's leaving out that he includes in previous texts. There's just a lot of evidence there to show that, that there's just a lot of this war narrative that is very isolated. It's like a self-fulfilling, a self-isolated text. But as we conclude here with chapter 62, we see that Moroni comes in, they are able to rid the land of all the naysayers, the people who have caused problems beforehand. They get rid of the the kingmen who refused to fight for their country. We have in verse 9, it says, And the men of Pacus received their trial according to the law, and also those kingmen who had been taken and cast into prison, and they were executed according to the law. Yea, those men of Pacus and those kingmen, whosoever would not take up arms in the defense of their country, but would fight against it, were put to death. And thus it became expedient that this law should be strictly observed for the safety of their country, yea, and whosoever was found denying their freedom was speedily executed according to the law. And, and what I find is interesting there, these weren't necessarily, I think, just pacifists like what we had read from Goring, but it, they, were sim- they were people who were also fighting. Now, this wasn't simply a, a conscientious objector status kind of ordeal. Right, these are insurrectionists. These are insurrectionists, right? So it's as though they are actually overthrowing, they are fighting against, and if you are going to, it's like what the Savior said to Peter at that very last moment that they were together, those who live live by the sword will die by the sword. And once you enter into that conflict and that conversation of conflict and of war, then that's what you have to expect in return. And so you see that these kingmen were not just trying to practice some principle, like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, but they were simply, they were trying to take control of the government for themselves. And so that ended up being their fate. And they entered into that. And also in 62, we have in verses 16 and 17 and 27 through through 29, again, something that we'd already talked about, that Moroni does stop at every turn. Whenever the people that he's fighting against will basically throw up a white flag or he'll look like they're not fighting as ardently as they would normally he'll stop the battle and anybody who wants to take up an oath he lets them go and it just happens to be that all these people still keep on going to, over to the people of Ammon and 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 rolling up with them so this really kind of culminates in in chapter 63 we have that at the very end of 62 that Moroni is done you know Moroni has fought a good fight He's taken it to the very end. He turns over the the chief the chief captain, as it were, the generalship over to his son Moroniha, and Helaman then goes back and and you kind of started with the end in mind, uh, Ben. But then they go back to after the wars are over, they go back and they realize that war is an absolute des- destitution for the church. That for the kingdom of God, that when we raise the war narrative, even in the name of God. When we come back, we find that the kingdom of God has always suffered the most. So it's kind of it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition and an interesting irony to fight a war in the name of God, and that the number one thing that suffers the most during that time is actually the church and the work of God. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I see here as we're closing out in chapter sixty-three um, some interesting things that happen. Uh, with regard to Helaman, the son of Helaman. And um, in particular, he he does something that is almost unprecedented. Um, and I, I hadn't quite noticed this before, I don't think. So 63 verse 12, um, it says, Now behold, all those engravings which were in the possession of Helaman. Now this is Helaman 
son of Helaman, were written and sent forth among the people of among the children of men throughout all the land, save it were those parts which had been commanded by Alma should not go forth. And uh, what's interesting about this, and, and maybe unprecedented, is that the people at large don't seem to have had access to uh, a lot of the prophecies of Alma, uh, the specific prophecies and teachings and preachings of Alma. Um, Alma would go out in the land and teach, but, you know, if you were in Gideon, you didn't hear what was told to the people of Melech. And, you know, if you were in Zarahemla, you didn't get what was told to the people, you know, these the people in some other city. And so uh, all of these things that were written down, you know, Helaman seems to uh, do a good job of disseminating this. And I see this as something really valuable among the people because it starts preparing and it says throughout all the land. I'm wondering if some of this stuff got among the Lamanites. Um, It starts preparing the people for a time where we're going to find in here in just the next generation where one of the most amazing miraculous um, missionary stories happens that rivals or potentially surpasses what the sons of Mosiah were able to do uh, even among uh, the Lamanites and converting the people unto the gospel. So I kind of see this right here as, as sort of a little key uh, preparation point that, that Helaman was really inspired to do in, in disseminating the scriptures and teachings that, that were available to him among the people. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And the transition of the record as well, in that it went from Helaman, the son of Alma, to Shiblon. And I thought that was really interesting that he gave it to his brother. And because we don't get very much about Shiblon, you know, he, we have that one chapter dedicated to him when he, when he's talking to Helaman, Shiblon and Corianton and then he's done, but Shiblon takes the record and he holds it. And before he dies, he hands it to Helaman's son. So he hands it back to the Helaman line. So now Helaman Jr. has it and that becomes the Helaman that we talk about. So I've always loved this. You have Alma, Alman, Alma, Alma, then Helaman, Helaman. And then you have Nephi, Nephi. <laughs> and so you have these uh, these father-son combos that are pretty funny. But we're going to end up talking about Helaman Jr. here through the book of Helaman. And that's going to be a great discussion. We're going to get in and, and uh, talk about some of the lead-up that happened in the, in the 50 years leading up to the birth of Christ. And those are just absolutely beautiful stories. But man, in conclusion of these war chapters, Ben, I think... For me, after going through all of these, I have a greater appreciation for the type of men who fight in these wars and who are able to go through the hell that is war and to keep at least the focus on God and the divine, no matter if it's even tainted by other narratives, but they were they were really trying honestly and sincerely and deeply to keep those things sacrosanct and that that was their motivation for action. Now, Every war is almost always fought with some kind of belief in or appealed to some kind of deity. And it's and in this case, it's really no different. But in their case, they were looking on playing the defensive role. Everything they did, even on the times that were you know semi-offensive, they were still playing a defensive game. They never they never invaded Lamanite lands. You know, they always stayed in their lands, notwithstanding. Even though Moroni does threaten to do that, right? <laughs> to <Amaron>. Right. <laughs> But, he, but Moroni said a lot of things, right? He's like, yeah, one of those he guys that, Moroni said a lot of things. Now, what he actually did, on the other hand, you know, he a pretty stellar guy. But yeah, he breathed a lot of threatenings 
And when it actually came to doing something about it, he was, it just, it's amazing who and what he was and his character and how he stood up for it. And so I look up the war chapters again in juxtaposition for the first half of the book of Alma. Again, to reiterate, and I've done it several times, is we have Alma coming in in a war. The book of Alma starts with war. It ends with the end of war. And so it's bookended by different wars. In the first one, we have Alma, who goes in and he has the two chief, he has the chief judge in the and the high priest position. He fights war, sees the futility of it, becomes and retains the high priesthood. He goes out as a missionary. We see what the results are of a missionary work to the people who have the covenant already. Then with the sons of Mosiah, we see the narrative unfold about how to preach the gospel to the people who don't have the covenant already. And in both cases, it leads to a place of self-sacrifice and suffering in the fires of Ammonihah and with the suffering and the self-sacrifice of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. So as if Mormon is telling us that if we're going to follow that path, we have to realize that we will be led like Christ to Calvary. If we're going to take upon ourselves the name of Christ and suffer as he suffered, that's going to be the end of our lot. And how glorious that is. We see in both cases just how glorious that is for those who walk that path. And then we see the juxtaposition of all of these war chapters that we've talked about, that even in the best of the best of the best situations and with the best people, war is simply hell. And if you want to choose this, yeah, you can see some miraculous things about it, but you're going to see a lot of narrative about it. You're going to see a lot of stories that go on a lot about it. And there's going to be moments and times in these stories where we just might make stuff up. And that's just the way it goes. But in the end, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter what place you find yourself, God is loving. And he always seeks to lift his children from where they are. And to the best of his ability, the best of, I say the best of God's ability, but God is God. So he has this amazing ability I can't even comprehend. But for our ability to be delivered by God, I guess is, is the, is what I'm getting at is that we, to the amount that we are willing to be delivered by God, he is always there for us, no matter where we are at. So when I see these these war chapters versus the, the other missionary chapters, it's that God is a God of love, and he always seeks to reclaim his children to the amount that they will let him. Amen. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, we look forward to talking with you next time. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.